This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Life, it moves at times in stages and cycles. Each instant, a moment which is often etched into our brains, sometimes even keeping us stuck to our past reminiscence and even rumination. This then becoming a roller coaster of feedback loops. And much to our dismay, throughout this thing we call life, at some point, we all experience the inevitable cycles of grief. Whether illness, disaster, or death of a loved one, most of us go through at least one traumatic event in our lifetime. Events that cause us despair in a deep, often lingering sense of loss. And perhaps to a lesser frequency, grief surfaces in situations such as the loss of a job, a career, or in our sense of innocence, as one experiences trauma, even in losing some sense of our personal identity. Today, we courageously look grief in the face so that we might examine some of the ways in which it surfaces throughout our lives when we return to the light inside. If grief had a face, many a smiles would hide a mourning heart. Yet faith alone teaches us what we are. The emotions of grief itself taking on many faces, not only as it's experienced in a variety of situations and circumstances, grief also presenting a distinctly individualized path for each of us to travel as we're learning to navigate its course. There's no manual on how to cope with loss and certainly no right or wrong way to go through the stages of grief. Our guest, grief and bereavement coach Jennifer Almeny, always believed in love, and when she found it, she cherished it. Jennifer tried not to dwell on losing any love she had, but without much time or notice, Jennifer's mother passed away, her world changing overnight. And when the love of her life dies, her life forever altered. It is in these moments she realizes that with the loss of these two loves, she's also losing herself. Today, Jennifer shares how facing grief is often an anguishing task, one which frequently lingers in painful suffering, as our seemingly endless discomfort still holds us in its grips. And in the process, empowering us along the way to navigate grief, bereavement, and loss in any area throughout our lives. Jennifer, we've kind of formed this notion of how we experience grief in so many different areas of our life, not only with our loves and losses, but with the loss of, say, career or sometimes even the sense of loss of self to kind of look at those various angles and dissect how we experience and move through this experience of grief and bereavement in life. Yeah, it's, and it's so important, grief. You know, we all experience grief in some way in our lives. Yeah. And I think it's it's important to open up the conversation a little bit more now, because I think historically um, it's an uncomfortable topic. So yes. no one wants to talk about it, right? No one wants to deal with it. No one wants to discuss it. But I think along my own journey, I realized um, the more and more I speak about it, and the more and more I'm open with people about my own experience, they open up more about it. They feel just a little bit more comfortable with it. And that doesn't mean everyone's fully comfortable with it. It just means they're a little bit 
more open, you know, into diving into that space. And it's like I said, it's an important topic. Life moves in cycles and much to our dismay, we all experience grief at some point in our life. And whether that be resulting from illness, disaster, death of a loved one, most of us go through at least one traumatic event in our lifetime. Events that cause us despair and a deep and often lingering sense of loss. Jennifer, today you're going to look at how grief and bereavement affect us as you lost not only your mother, but also the love of your life in very quick succession. Could you share with us a little bit of your story? Yes, I I lost my boyfriend. uh, It's about three years ago now. And that was a a sudden thing, uh, his passing. Um, My mother also passed about 14 years ago. And I think during this last loss, um, I not not only affected me differently, the grief, um, but I realized I didn't fully grieve for my mother in that whole Mm -hmm. time that I was kind of like, I think I want to say stuck in this space that I didn't realize to me externally, I was like living my life. And I thought that I had worked through it in some way. And, you know, it just, it just kind of came crashing to an end uh, the second during the second loss where it was like, no, wait a minute, you didn't deal with everything. So I took a, a different look at grief. I, I started to realize that grief um, is an intimate thing that we all go through. And I stopped looking at the things that we put out there in society as like these different stages of grief and all of that. I know they exist and all that, but I think seeing this book of stages, I think we all think we need to go through that or we want to label when we're going through it. We want to label, oh, I think I'm in this now. I think I'm in that stage. And it's such a fluid space, grief, and so intimate that I stopped putting these labels on on things like that for myself because I realized it wasn't doing me any good. So I started looking at it at differently and then trying to put my voice out there. Um, I started to journal about three months after my boyfriend had passed. I've always journaled my whole life. But this was different. It was coming out a lot faster um, what I was feeling and a lot about my mother. So um, the pen was moving very quickly while I was writing. So I knew it was something more than just myself. And then five months later, I had, I had a book on my hands and it wasn't my intention to write a book. I just realized it was me getting words out that I needed to. But then I want to say it was, you know, spirit was with me telling me that I was meant to help other people in, in a different way and look at it differently. You know, since I, I think I decided at that point that I wasn't going to stay on the ground anymore. With this last loss, I wasn't going to stay in the darkness that I had uh, previously. That experience of death so often makes us feel so helpless. Yet bereavement, that sense of loss and coping with it, is full of choice. You know, we often hear of the five stages of grief, as you mentioned, yet no two people experience the same way. How were you able to cope with such a tragic loss? Yeah, I I started just looking at things differently. I started to get out into nature more. That was big. Uh, I felt a little bit more connected to the universe. And I felt that that was bringing, I want to say, life back into me. But I didn't realize that I had silenced for so long. You know, not only my voice, but my life and it moving forward in different ways. I had silenced it. I want to say also, you know, meditating more. that That got me a little bit more connected. I felt that stillness brought me peace. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to sit in silence with their thoughts and what goes on in their head and different, thinking about different things that go on. But I realized that that stillness brought me a lot of peace. And I also, I, I started to let the light back inside. I realized when I had lost my mother, I didn't want to go into that light and feel that. She was such an important person in my life. You know, she was uh, my mother, my father, and my best friend. She was a single mom. So it was like, I lost three people. 
in one. And I didn't want to like, look at that life. You know, I didn't want the light, you know, with me again, cause she wasn't with me. But this time around losing my boyfriend and finding the love of my life later on in my life, I'm in my mid forties, you know, and he was in his fifties. We found each other and it was such, you know, this, this whirlwind romance, you know, and then he was gone. And that, that shook me, I think, into place where I also let that light back inside. So that's another thing that I tell people. I know people don't want to go there when they're sitting in the grief, but just let it in a little bit, that little light, whatever that may be. If that means getting out of bed, you know, taking a shower, it may sound, you know, but it is because when you're down in the dumps, it's that simple. And that I feel is letting that light back inside a little bit. So you have to kind of open that door and that window a little bit. Also, that got me through it. That sense of darkness of loss can be such a sea of emotions, those feelings coming and going very often. And we kind of move through that cycle. How can we address these feelings as we somewhat relearn to live in the world as we now experience it? I think a big part of it is giving ourselves grace. I think we're hard on ourselves as human beings that we're supposed to be at a certain point with certain things and what society tells us. So I think giving ourselves that grace every single day no matter where you are in that hole, right? So if you're doing little things to get out of the hole, just little by little, and if you have to backtrack a little bit, we, you know, like you said, the emotions go up and down. It's a roller coaster. So you could be obviously great one day, then the next day you're down in the dumps again. So it's like giving yourself grace also saying, you know what, it's not, it's not going to all happen in one day. Just keep moving forward no matter what. And giving yourself that moment of saying, hey, you're doing great, you know, patting yourself on the back. I think that evolves into, you know, I realized that, that I was lacking a lot of self-love during this process too. I realized that I wasn't being kind to myself. I wasn't giving myself the space when I was grieving with my mother. It was so, everyone was so overwhelmed at the time. So I was helping others in a sense or not telling people my true pain because I thought who wanted to hear it. So that was me not loving myself. And I didn't realize that till now. So I think self-love is important and that that grace ties in with it. Share with us, Jennifer, if you will, some of those feelings and questions that started to arise for you as you went through this experience. Yeah, I think you automatically start thinking like, could you, could you have done more? You know, with my two Mm -hmm. experiences with grief, it was cancer in both cases. So it was, you know, you start questioning, could you have done more, right? Could you have been more attentive to the person and when they were ill, you know, or, or not feeling that well in the beginning, could you have jumped on it faster? So you start just doubting you know, the decisions that you made on that, that comes into play. And then, you know, I, I want to say for me, part of it was like, again, why do I want to exist here without my mother? You know, it wasn't in a sense of, I never felt such despair of that. I wanted to not be here. It wasn't like, that wasn't that bad for me, but it's just, it was kind of like, uh, I'll just go through the motions of life every day. She's not here. Why celebrate or have any kind of joy or excitement? You know, why should I enjoy that? Because she's not here to enjoy it. And I think when my boyfriend left, I think I looked at things differently in a sense of with him, I was shocked into place of, oh, why am I not living? Why should I, I have to go on. I have to go on for him. And then I realized for her too, for their own spirit. Um, And then the love for me, the love that they had for me and and through me, like I had to. So I think a lot of those, those questions come into play or you're just wondering if you could did things differently. Do you feel like you started to question why we're here in some regards. Yeah, absolutely. I just, um, I started thinking, you know, at one point I think I started thinking, you know, are we here just for pain? Like, are we here just to experience this pain? And it, cause it comes across and it's so, it's so strong and all of that. 
but I want to say it wasn't just due to grief. I want to say uh, the past six years or so, I had started wondering what my purpose was. Mm-hmm. I knew that my career that I had at the time um, wasn't fulfilling to me. And I knew that I was just, again, living that automatic life. So I think it's, it came in tandem that I was already opening my eyes a little bit as to asking myself, why are we here in general? And then when my boyfriend passed, it was just a shocker in a sense of, oh yeah, why are we here? Like, what are you doing? Basically, I had that message very strongly inside of me. Like, what are you doing with your life? Are you living it fully? And are you spreading joy and love into the world? I knew that there was a stronger purpose. And I know that we're meant to impact each other as human beings. But I think that, you know, society puts things out there as far as different things we're supposed to do in life. And we all follow suit sometimes and not stand out of the line or out of the box and say, you know what, I want to look at things differently and then maybe pay that forward and spread that word to other folks. So it's kind of like on the journey that I feel like I'm on now. I'm trying to say, Hey, you can do something totally different, right? I had a human resources career for 22 years. Now I'm, you know, writing a book. I'm a Reiki master. I'm, you know, spreading, you know, joy and love into the, into the world. And that's my kind of way of giving back saying, you know, I got out of the hole myself. So I want to kind of be of service to others and try to help others get out of that hole. So I am, yeah, looking at life a little different in my purpose, for sure. You shared how that helped guide you back to that sense of joy and purpose. How now do you feel that's guiding you to live your own life differently? Yeah, I think I have much more gratitude for life. I've always had the gratitude and it was always there. But seeing all this loss around me and then as a world altogether, right, we have a lot of loss going on right now. We've had that for a few years, a lot of loss. So I think that that was also impacting me saying, like, what do I want to do to try to make a difference? You know, it doesn't mean I'm going to save the world but with my own two hands, but it means I'm going to do my part as a whole, as a collective. And I think that's an important thing to put out there, you know, to every single human being that, you know, I feel like we are here to do our part and add to that. That had to be such a gut wrenching and devastating experience to go through. How now do we look at that experience from taking from it, (laughs) for lack of better words, and learn to find our way back to that light? I think because I felt that love so much stronger through the grief. Um, I felt the love while they were here on this earth with me, but it was even stronger. I I knew it when, when they had left. And I think that it infused my heart even more. It made my heart grow open even wider. That I realized, oh, I am here to love. Even though they were here, both of them were here for a period of time in my life, I'm still thankful for the period that I had with them. I'm not looking at it anymore in a sense of, I want it more time. I'm not begging or looking at it that I want it so much more time. If I had more time, yes, it would have been great, but I don't look at it like that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's more of like, oh, I'm blessed to have had that experience with them for the time that I did. Um, and then I know that, you know, I think everyone has different beliefs, but I know that they're still around me in spirit. I know that they're here. I don't think that we ultimately die. I I believe that we go on in spirit Mm. into some other form. So I know that they're around me. They show me little signs um, every day that they're with me and that they're rooting me on. Like, I want to say that they're my biggest cheerleaders, you know, right here, right right now. But they've also shown me to say that I'm thankful for everything in my life, you know, and that means those little things where I say, thank you for waking me up when my eyes open in the morning. And I do that every single day. It's, It's not a hard thing. But that's the difference in the gratitude that I had before that I have now. It's so it's so much greater. That sense of hope does have to give us such a strong resting place as we move through that process, from my perspective. Gives us that sense of being that 
there was some meaning to all of this loss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that, at least I feel, I think a big component of why we're here is to learn about love on the, mm-hmm. on, the, on the earth. I think that I believe that God is love, the universe is love, that we're all love and it's all energy. And I feel like we're here to learn how to love, but unconditionally, basically, unconditionally that like we're all equal and we're all one. And I think that I feel like we're here to learn that. There you have it. Perhaps the greatest lesson one gains from the process of grief and loss to simply love, give, and be loved. Can there be anything which exists beyond that? Our next guest shares how a career-ending injury left him with a sense of loss and grieving as he struggled to recover his sense of identity and purpose. Keegan Hadley shares how he overcame this hurdle to rise again when we return to The Light Inside. What's the key to a happy and fulfilling life? I think it's the fear of showing up in our purity and our truth. We fear the sight. That's what I feel like this whole journey has brought me to. Oftentimes, the things that we think will make us happy will not bring us safety and security. At the end of the day, we are a sovereign, energetic being who has all the tools already on the inside. It is within your fingertips. You can create the life that you want. And the only person that is stopping you from creating that life is you. Our greatest transformation happens from deep within. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside, that beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. Visit us at www.thelightinside.us to find out more. Many factors influence our perception of personal identity. And as we form this view, It often takes on a multitude of dimensions and aspects. At times, even holding up our entire sense of being and purposefulness. Personality traits, abilities, likes and dislikes, your belief system or moral code, and the things that motivate you, these all contributing to self-image or what one perceives as their core identity as a human being. People who easily describe these aspects typically have a fairly strong sense of who they are. Yet sudden and often devastating incidents can instantly shift our circumstances and seemingly erase this perception, doing so in an instant. As one moves through this experience, we are often sent scrambling in an anxious and stressful search to rediscover who and what we are on the inside. The never-changing us which simply is what it is. Aspiring professional football player turned occupational therapist Keegan Hadley shares just such a story. After torn ACL injuries on both legs effectively ended his football career, Keegan was left standing at these crossroads, a lingering grief then setting in. Keegan, I'm excited to have a conversation with you today looking at post-traumatic stress. Our traumatic experiences often play an essential role in our day-to-day experience of life, very frequently resurfacing in the patterns and how we experience that day-to-day life. So Keegan, let's take a look at the psychological impact of grief on traumatic recovery. You shared your experience with this in your book, Torn, Overcoming the Psychological Challenges of post-ACL injury. Mm-hmm. You tore two ACLs. That had to be such great excruciating pain to experience. 
Yeah. Such a, a traumatic event, you know, when we consider that. Share with us a little bit about your story and that journey. Yeah, of course. So it's a little different than most people think when, when you see, I mean, you see a big hulking guy on, you know, um, sports center and he's crying after he likely tore his ACL. A, a lot of times there's a misconception that it's physical, like it's painful to tear your ACL. And I, I would, um, you know, both my experiences, I tore one in both leg. I didn't have that experience. It just felt like a, I mean, you could hear it, obviously the, all the telltale signs are there. You have a very audible pop and it essentially feels like you tore um, a rubber band. You didn't know you had in your knee and it takes you off your feet for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why that's the case, but yeah. So I, I tore one, my, uh, junior year of college. And then, that was my right leg. And then my left leg, I tore about a year and a half later after I had trained and went to a few combines, I got on a semi-professional arena football team. And then I was having a private tryout in Ohio for the Canadian football league. And I tore my left ACL in both times by far the most painful thing is just knowing as an athlete, you're not going to be able to do what you love to do for a very extended period of time, um, anywhere from six months to years, depending on how hard you attack the rehabilitation. So it, it's definitely a huge issue with the clients I see is the loss of self-identity, self-esteem, because a lot of people like, like myself, we spend all this time, you know, honing our physical craft in no time, really developing our mental skills or you know, faculties necessary to function without the self-esteem bump all the time of, okay, I had a good practice. So I feel good today. You know, I had a bad practice. Well, physically, this is what I have to do tomorrow to have a good practice. So, I mean, it, it was just all physical. So jumping from that to doing what I could to get to where I needed to be was uh, a difficult process. As you're building for that career, as a semi-professional football player that has to have such an impact and toll on how you view your sense of purpose in your identity, as you mentioned, share with us a little bit about that in regards to the emotional impact that has yeah. on a person. So, so to get to that, I mean, and that, that by no um, stretch of the imagination is, you know, the NFL or anything, even the Canadian football league, it's much smaller. So it's not anything crazy, but to get to that level, you have to be very singular focused. Like I was a football player. Like if someone asked me what I did, yeah, I was going to college. I was learning. I had great grades, but I was a football player. That's what I love to do. That's what I had spent all my time doing that. I, how I ate, how I trained, how I lived my day-to-day -day life was an athlete. So, you know, when that's taken away, it's excruciating. For sure. What were some of the mixed bag of feelings that might have started to pop up as you're going through some of this? Yeah, a lot of the feelings that came up were essentially, am I, am I worth anything not as an athlete? I had to take a step back and really look at who I was off the field or outside of the you know workout facility. And, and that's a difficult thing to do if you, if you haven't spent any time in your life really taking a step back and looking at who you are as a person, that, that first few, uh, you know, glances, this is quite difficult. And we form such a sense of purpose and identity off of that sense of belonging, that sense of being so often. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we experience things like this injury where that's suddenly very forcefully taken away from us. 
Yep. Yeah, it's it's definitely difficult. And, and I can say personally, um, I, I had gr- a great staff, like the athletic trainers, sports scientists, physical therapists, um, surgeons, and all that. They they were all fantastic, but no one really focuses at all on the uh, the mental health or the psychological component of these injuries. And, and that's really what I want to spend a, a large portion of my professional career around. And you're spending so much time and energy in developing all of the sense of focus. And suddenly that's taken away. You know, we feel that loss very often as that sense of grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're almost mourning uh, the death of a dream. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard, hard to explain, but that, that would be, if I was to summarize it, that's, that's what it is. You're, it's the death of a dream that you've probably had. Most athletes have it when they're, old enough to even have dreams is you, uh, you know, watch TV, watch football and all oh, that's, that's what I want to do right there. That's, that's it. So when you're three, four years old to, you know, 25, 26, I mean, that's, that's a long time. That's pretty much all of your life at that point. That you're feeling that sense of this dream kind of slip away. Do you kind of feel like that sense of purpose is floating away with it? Oh, uh, for sure. I, I had no idea, um, what I wanted to do. Like, uh, especially prior to my first ACL surgery, I, I knew I kind of wanted to be involved in athletics cause that's all I had had up until that point. But when, when it's taken away from you like that, just so abruptly, um, it's almost painful to be like, okay, now I'll go be around sports. I'll go watch football. Mm. And it's like, for me, it didn't work like that. I kind of had to get away from it. Um, you know, as painful as that was in itself, um, I, I needed some distance. So you really are completely cut off from the entire culture or environment that you've spent the last 20 plus years around. It's very, very empty feeling. And like I said, you don't know who you are as a person, you don't know what you're working towards. Everything seems pretty hopeless um, at that, that particular time without any additional help or guidance. As you're still involved with this and sitting somewhat on the sidelines, mm-hmm. that has to be such a painful reminder of everything you're going through. Yeah, uh, for sure. So once you, you know, tear it, depending on what position you are, as far as you, you have to watch someone else do what you would be doing had this not happened to you. And watching someone else, you know, step into that role is, it's very difficult. Um, it's extremely difficult. I would say that's one of the hardest parts actually is because it's always customary, I guess, to have, so say athlete X tore their ACL on Monday. Well, you know, on Tuesday, regardless, um, I put their probably, you know, met with the doctor or depending on swelling and those kinds of things, they may or may not have a diagnosed ACL tear there at practice Tuesday, um, just on crutches. And it's, you know, blatantly obvious that they will not be participating for the foreseeable future. So, I mean, uh, and you have to watch, it's kind of like, yeah, you're still part of the team. You have to be there, but it's, um, I I don't think people really realize the amount of emotional distress that's really putting on that particular individual, just having to watch what they I mean, unless they were forced to be on the, you know, the sports team, it's painful to be there still. Um, you want to be there for your teammates because you definitely love at least most of them, but it's painful. That had to leave you hanging with such a sense of uncertainty. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, uh, you don't know where to go forward because I mean, the prognosis for, you know, an athlete with these injuries, it's pretty uncertain. Still the, the retail rate, not only of the leg you had surgery on, but like me personally, I, I tore the other one um, because you start to like, Oh, this is my quote unquote bad leg. I got to protect it. Well, if you focus a lot of your movements and put a lot more stress on the other one, you're, you're just going to be back where you started. So, I mean, it's, it's hard. Not only are you dealing with that stress of that injury, your body now is kind of adjusting and dealing with a sense of imbalance, you know, overcompensating sometimes in that regard. Yeah, for, for sure. So it's really hard to explain to someone who hasn't had an ACL injury, but the ACL is like a, a tiny, it's an inch and a half long and a half an inch wide or so. So, I mean, it's, it's tiny, but just having that surgery, I can honestly say it's, it, I've always compared it to having a leg transplant because you'll get out of surgery and then everything about that side of your body, at least lower half of your body is different. So now you have a whole bunch of tightness, a whole, a whole bunch of swelling and that, I mean, it's great to say, yeah, it, it takes six to 12 months, but I mean, truthfully, unless you're engaging in joint specific workout regimens that definitely aren't the norm as of right now, that doesn't go away. So it's, it's like a, like I said, it's, it's like having your native before you, unless you're like me and I feel very balanced um, <laughs> before, before, before that, I mean, you have one leg that, Oh, it feels normal. That feels good. Um, but then the other leg is just, it's, it's not the same. It's, it's, it's like getting a leg transplant. That's the only way I can really put it into words. You've mentioned now you feel that sense of balance. You've kind of worked your way through the trauma and come to terms with it. Mm-hmm. As you're traveling that journey, what were the deepest depths of that sense of trauma, that sense of loss you might've experienced? Yeah. So in my book, I discuss, I'm a ridiculously slow learner. I guess, uh, just, uh, kind of life lessons wise. I, I always joked with my professors going through my doctoral program that I learned through trauma. And that was kind of a joke kind of wasn't. Um, so essentially having these kinds of injuries, if, if you don't address them psychologically, um, especially, you know, in my opinion and what I've seen from some clients I've worked with, it can lead to, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, those kinds of things, but it also can snowball like it did for me. So, um, I I started to become very like, uh, jaded. Um, I I was not a good friend, boyfriend because I was just angry. Um, I I was internally very, very angry. Um, I'm diagnosed with anxiety, but (laughs) so that that's always been kind of a, a theme in my life, but it kind of snowballs and it actually led to me making some really poor, relationship decisions where I ended up dating who I, who I would find out was an alcoholic. So a lot of my stories actually stem from the trauma and situations I found myself in that, you know, kind of culminated in me being suicidal for, a, uh, you know, months. So it, it went down quite, quite deep before I even started to find any of these or, or even look for any of these skills. So that all has to have such a snowball effect of experiencing one sense of loss after the other, one sense of challenge that follows the other. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that learning curve. You know, we all learn and go through and move through these processes at different paces. 
Mm-hmm. When a person is experiencing that devastating loss of that tragic event, you can seem like those circumstances are becoming etched in our memory. Whereas very often those positive things we experience, some of those day-to-day gratitude things we go through mm-hmm. just seem to float off. You know, that's oh, yeah. one of those neurological aspects of trauma, how it not only imprints in our memory, but throughout our system, you know, moving into the central nervous system and getting into polyvagal theory, which we'll look at here in a little bit. One of those main purposes of memory though, is, to serve as that teacher, you know, what are we learning about ourselves first and foremost in that emotion? And then also as we experience how we navigate life. Yeah. So I guess for me out out of this situation, this is why I, when I reached that point uh, of where I was, you know, um, in an emotionally abusive um, and at times physically abusive relationship, I knew that I couldn't continue the way I was. I outline it in my book uh, very, very clearly. So you get all the information on why I made the change. But once I started going to a therapist, I had a hard time because kind of the rationale behind a lot of um, CBT methods is thought change or, or, you know, trying to alter your thoughts. And I had a supremely difficult time doing that. I, I physically, I, I don't know what it is about my brain, but it's one of those things. If you say, hey, don't look over here, I will look over there every single time and I'll, <laughs> I'll focus over there. So um, what really helped me is actually diving into a different framework, which was um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is what the book is all about. And, and being able to understand that, hey, you know, this thought here about, um, you know, self-harm or, or if you're an athlete, oh, hey, I'm broken now. Realizing, yes, you, you can't change that thought, but you don't have to attach yourself to it. You don't have to act on that thought and realize that we all can't control our thoughts. So you can just kind of let it pass by, uh, just giving me the power to decide which thought I would act on or you know, focus on was, was really powerful for me. And it, it seems really simple, but being able to, to give yourself just that that a little bit of distance away from your thoughts. So you are not the thought was huge for me. And just finally taking baby steps away from the, the darker periods of my life. Now, as you've moved through this now, and you're able to step back mm-hmm. as you've gained, you know, this path of learning, aren't these what we then would deem, you know, some of the more telltale signs of PTSD. Yeah, um, there's been a decent amount of research on ACL injuries and PTSD just from the standpoint of the the way you react. So even to this day, I I have to fight myself a little bit. Say, for example, like due to the training I'm doing right now, I'm stronger and more flexible and everything else than I've been probably ever. But I, I still get those thoughts of, you know, I get invited to go on a snowboarding trip, you know, and I. I grew up snowboarding. I love snowboarding, but ever since those injuries, I, I didn't until more recently. And, you know, you have those thoughts that, Hey, you had these injuries <laughs> and you just kind of got to let it go by. And, um, it, you know, that they're always there. And from a relational standpoint, which probably would really resonate with a lot of your audience, I, I still have just due to that toxic relationship I was in things that are n- normal to me. I, I have ticks that all kind of, if my significant other, who is fabulous now, I have zero complaints. She's amazing. But um, some things that are normal in relationships that happen, 
will set me off. And for whatever reason, I'll just get super, super anxious. And it's, it's not her fault, but um, it's just kind of reliving those moments, you know, and being able to understand that you're not in those moments anymore. So there it's, it's a very real thing. I can tell you that. We look at those trauma triggers. We're learning that Mm -hmm. in a very negative manner sometimes from those traumatic events or those tragic memories, you know, the tragic loss of a loved one forming some of those. They're unable to kind of move beyond that. We're being pulled back into that cycle of re-injuring the trauma. I'm curious, looking at that aspect of it, as I'm watching this Johnny Depp Amber Heard case unfold, two individuals here running through various experiences of their own traumas and how that drama then plays out in their relationship. Keegan, let's look at how our bodies are not only affected by the state of our energy, but our body chemistry taking effect as we experience trauma in the form of hormonal bounce as well. What two hormones contribute to the stress response of trauma and start there? Uh, definitely cortisol. <laughs> it's a lot of, lot of cortisol uh, from my research, for sure. That's, I'm not a neuropsychologist or anything like that, but I, I do know that is you know, had kind of a mainstay in my probably brain for quite a while. Luckily, I'm doing quite well now, but immediately following those injuries, there was a definite cortisol uh, <laughs> release. All these hormones bouncing through our body, we know from our own observations, from our own experiences, as we're moving through various emotional states, it can be such an emotional roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's there's definitely days when you're going through this whole process because it's months or, I mean, depending again, like I said, it could be years. It, you definitely have your down days where you can definitely feel the stress really getting to you and everything just seems to be piling on top of, you know, uh, each other, which, which can make things quite challenging. Even, even trivial things like going to class or, you know, going to work or, or wherever you're at in your life, those, those, Uh, mundane things that you know you have to do, but it makes them very, very challenging. We're going to talk more about that challenge with a couple other guests to bring that story into a different light. So sharing that aspect of your story right there gives us that relatable note and nod to it of how an individual hits that firsthand. So thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah. thank you. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Grief can often be such a complex and confusing state of experience, and we often lack the ability to simply put it into words. Just what is it we might be going through? Naming grief, acknowledging its presence, along with the many thoughts and feelings one might be experiencing, is often a very empowering action. Vulnerably accepting our emotions and thoroughly processing them is a valid invaluable process throughout every interaction we experience on a daily basis. This is perhaps especially so during our cycles of grief. Next, we look at how grief is often accompanied by a deep sense of anxiety. We explore this aspect now with stress and anxiety coach Sandy Wozniki. Having been fed up of a lifetime of anxiety, Sandy discovered resilience training work several years ago after trying various forms of different therapies, medication and self-medication, without getting the results she wanted. Now Sandy is guiding others with high-functioning anxiety to become calm, confident, 
and able to handle anything life throws at them with graceful resilience. Sandy, you share how it's so useful to name our emotions as we navigate such potentially stressful and debilitating experiences as grief. We experience grief in so many different ways. So often we only associate grief with death or loss, you know, particularly like loss of a position, loss of change in a career. Yeah. And sometimes even that is kind of out of our range of knowledge that we're grieving that thing. Yeah. As we dig down into grief, we find that there's lots of patterns of grief that surface as we're going through the trauma cycle, we're grieving. Absolutely. How does that come into play? So we're starting to form these relationships through the stories. And that's the beauty is we start to really dig in and observe, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily even looking at learning or growth. We just observe to notice and say, I'm grieving this, but I don't consciously acknowledge that. Yeah, I think finding the words to articulate, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. Like it just absolutely transforms your experience of it when you can step outside of it far enough to recognize, oh, that's what's going on. Like that little space of objectivity, there's so much power in it. It doesn't change anything, but it also changes everything. <laughs> and and being able to like put words to like... <laughs> For example, like that's one of the things I learned in my coaching practices is finding words to put to these things that we experience, because then it just makes it so much easier to navigate it. Like one of the examples I use is, you know, early on, my husband very rightfully uh, called me out on going nuclear, which was (laughs) so this was this is me um, believing what I was doing was empowerment, but really it was a runaway strategy, which was we would butt heads. He'd be doing something that I definitely don't want him to be doing, which was, I don't know, being angry at something that I don't think he should be angry at. (laughs) (laughs) So of course my reaction is to get angry because I mean, why wouldn't I get angry at somebody's anger? (laughs) And then I would think, well, I mean, if it's going to stay like this, I just don't know how we could, you know, make this work and stay together. <laughs> you know, I, would, I wouldn't be like, that's it. I want a divorce. But I would, of course, like I would allude to that's where we're going to go if this doesn't solve itself. And he called me out on it. He's like, you hit the nuclear button. And I hated hearing it, but I was just like, you know what? You're right. And so I incorporated that into my practice and looking at the phases of when we do get triggered. And that initial phase, that initial nuclear phase that whoop, I just spiked mm-hmm. out of my zone of control and I am in my triggered state. And that is when I'm thinking about divorce. I'm going to leave my job. I'm <laughs> right now. Oh, everyone's going to die. This is the worst thing in the world. Like I'm in the nuclear phase, like kid having a tantrum that's nuclear phase. (laughs) And then, you know, once I I started putting words to that and then there's the reckoning phase, which is, okay, I'm not nuclear anymore, but I'm still like processing this. And I'm still telling myself the stories about how right I am and how wrong he is. And I'm still feeling my feelings. (laughs) There's that reckoning phase. And then you come down at like, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the side diet you ever hear of that? Like, I have not. To, Share with more us. Than 90, like, it was this, it's not so much of a diet, but more of like a mentality or went round when you're eating and you just take a natural <sighs> sigh mm. that's your body saying, you know what? I've had enough food. Like we're done. Like your body's like, okay, I can relax now. I had enough food. And it's like, you hit that moment when you come down from that reckoning phase of like, <sighs> okay, like maybe that was a big reaction. 
okay, maybe I can see it from their point of view. That's your body telling you, okay, you're back in control now. So like putting labels on these things, like being able to say, you know what, this is, this is, you're grieving the loss of this friendship. You're grieving the loss of this dream that you, you know, had been thinking about for so long. And now it looks like it's not going to come true. Um, it, it just, it makes us so much more tangible and then it's easier to do the work and make the shifts. You're like, okay, I'm nuclear. I know that I shouldn't have a conversation when I'm in this phase. Like, okay. Like I'm still processing. I'm still in the reckoning phase. I still want to be pissed off right now. Still not the best time to have a conversation once I, okay, I can at least even if it's begrudgingly look at it from the other point of view, now I can have it. Now I'm open enough to have a conversation about it. That sigh to me is so essential. You know, to me, I feel that's intuitively our body telling us that that breath matters. I feel intuitively that's our body saying, you know what you need at this moment. And that's just a simple pause and breath of air. So there's a lot of interesting correlations there that we don't necessarily find the label or the language as you spoke of. And I find that to be, you know, my greatest insight today is thank you for sharing that idea of we don't often find the words to simply express the things we're experiencing. Then we get stuck in experiencing. (laughs) I'm just, which, and by that, it's like you're, you're victimized by it. Mm But being able to put a name to it, it's like, okay, I have a little bit more control because I can objectively see that's what's going on while I'm experiencing it. And understanding too, that now that I know what it is, I know it can have a beginning and an end. I want to share a little secret with you today about a podcast booking and matching platform I truly love. As a podcast host and guest, my go-to podcast booking app is podmatch.com. If you currently have a podcast, regularly guest on podcast, or if you are new to the podcasting game looking to start your show, podmatch.com is an industry leader. They quickly and effortlessly connect ideal podcast guests and hosts. Their process is super easy and highly effective. Create your free guest or host account and set up your profile. It's really that easy. And the Podmatch AI will work its magic in the background, delivering your ideal interview matches within minutes, tailored uniquely for you. As a host and executive producer of the Top 100 Self-Improvement Podcast, The Light Inside, I found more high-quality guests on Podmatch than anywhere else and in a fraction of the time. So if you're looking to expedite your podcast booking experience, fill in your calendar with high-engagement content, creating value and meaning for your listening community. Check out podmatch.com, that's P-O-D-match.com, today and discover your ideal match magic. Grief is sometimes subtle in its experience as we mourn the little things. Surfacing as guilt and shame for our emotional reactions or the grief we feel over our perceived failures. Even felt within the little things in our day-to-day journey. 
In this case, do you feel guilty for grieving small losses? When we think of grief, we usually think of the loss of a loved one. However, we can grieve anything to which we are emotionally attached. We just never realize the number of things to which we are attached. And then there are those times when the enormity of life itself creates a certain level of complexity which feels utterly perplexing. Like grieving the loss of what many consider a dying planet. In this segment, we look at the losses felt when we realize the emotional impact of simply being human. Some of our attachments might be considered trivial and unimportant, but there are also many small losses that we experience that have become a larger part of our lives. We are grateful for what we have, but can still mourn the way our lives used to be. Take into account, if you will, how one might feel as they witness what is often viewed as the dying of our planet. Climate change is no doubt at the forefront of many of our minds, and speaking of it definitely can trigger emotional reactions. Carrie Pitzulu is a former academic and author who has taken time to deeply ponder just what it means to witness the potentially devastating impact of climate change. And with genuine concern, as a mother and multi-passionate PhD, as of late, she has been wrestling with this concept and as a result, feeling an uneasy sense of grief. Carrie, after witnessing the very devastating nature of the wildfires that you experienced firsthand in 2020, you shared how you felt as if yourself and others were perhaps grieving a dying planet. And this really kind of gets me thinking, what is a dying planet? And in that regard, how do we grieve it? So what triggered this reaction specifically for you, Carrie? Well, the historic fires that we experienced here in Colorado in the fall of 2020 um, were really close to home. <laughs> and um, it, it really sort of hit me in a spiritual way, in, in ways that I really would have never expected. And, and I'm happy to talk about that. But I had actually started really facing this grief in 2018. And it was it was actually kind of random. I just read an article online about climate collapse and this dying world that we're now facing. And it finally hit me in a very visceral way. I started crying reading this article. And I spent the next year really, um, well, I, I spent that first year running from that grief because really, if we're being honest about this, um, we're quite possibly and quite likely facing what is basically an apocalypse. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's not an uplifting kind of idea, but ultimately, you know, we're talking about mass extinction and it's not out of the conversation to question whether humanity can even survive this transition. And so that was pretty hard for me to deal with because it had finally hit me on a very visceral level, particularly as a mother. And then that was the first year of kind of running from it. And then I spent another year facing it and trying to come to terms with it and find some kind of peace. And then in that really third year of my own grappling with this grief is when we had those wildfires. And it was really strange for me. Because on the one hand, 
it's of course terrifying and really overwhelming. And I have to say that where I live, we were very close to the fires, but for the most part, we were safe. So I did have the luxury of pondering this in a spiritual way, in a deeply um, a personal and, and I would say energetic way. Those are like kind of the words that, that people in my woo-woo universe use. And um, I, I live just outside of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And for weeks, you know, we had orange skies, ash raining on our home. Um, you know, you could see plumes of smoke during the day, fire at night. And there was one, well, it, it, it played out over a week or two. There's a road that, that goes along the foothills there. And, you know, there were just thousands of cars every day traveling up and down this road with this historic fire a few miles away. And it was very strange to me to think that like, while there are people evacuating their homes and businesses and animals being devastated up in those hills, for the rest of us, we're thinking about it and worrying about it, but we're going about our daily lives. We're literally driving past apocalyptic fires on our way to the grocery store. Mm. But I also had this very strange sense that I couldn't put my finger onto at first. It was a kind of pit in my stomach, but it was more than just anxiety or fear. Um, it was a kind of longing, like being drawn to the fire and to the smoke. Of course, I didn't go anywhere near it. Again, I had the luxury of this kind of spiritual exploration, but it was a strange sense of longing. And I didn't know what that was. It was almost like a longing for connection with what was happening in those hills. And one night I walked to the edge of my neighborhood to see the flames in the darkness when they were getting really close, but again, a safe enough distance. And I finally realized, again, I'm a woo woo, you know, full moon, witchy kind of person. And so I relate to the divine. I relate to the gods. I was just going to say the gods, right? Because that's my thing. I relate to what most people refer to as God um, in a feminine form, in a goddess form. And what I realized was this strange feeling that I had in my body when I was thinking about the fires and looking at them in the distance was a recognition of the goddess of destruction, mm. which is um, articulated in stories and mythology and folklore and spiritual belief systems around the world since ancient times, right? The goddess isn't just you know, puppies and, and, and rainbows, right? She, she is also a goddess of death and destruction. And I realized that my body was recognizing her. And as soon as I had that realization, I got weak in my legs. I got nauseous. It was like my whole body was on fire with electricity. And it was, it was so powerful. It really made me think about, as I had been for a few years at that point, this notion of death and dying and destruction and grief in a very spiritual sense. And it just reminded me what I've always known, but again, you sort of realize these things on deeper and deeper levels throughout a spiritual exploration is that all of this is a part of a bigger picture, right? Even as the earth is dying, even as the earth is in many ways destroying us because we have so destroyed her, right? With something like a, forest fire, spirit is there and goddess is there. And that's part of what helps to bring me a sense of peace and acceptance with what I think is likely the end of most of, of what we know as civilization in the coming decades. 
I think it's very fascinating to look at that aspect of being drawn to the flame. Yes. So often as human beings, we look at that flame as kind of being the flame of life. You know, we equate that in some mannerisms to our very core energy and the core energy of existence. I find it fascinating then in that regard to look at how as human beings, we come into that desire to seek meaning. Right. That curiosity of why we simply are here. Right. And I, I think it's so primal. And I think that as we continue to face the collapse of our environment and the various kinds of disasters and struggles that come out of that, we're probably more and more of us more often are going to be reconnecting with that primal part of ourselves because we forget that we're part of the earth. We've forgotten that for so long, but we're all a part of the same living organism. You know, we're, we're, we're not separate. Um, the earth is not um, a non-living thing for us to exploit, right? We're, I believe that we're all a part of the same living consciousness. And so I really felt that I was being drawn to it because it was that primal recognition. It was an overwhelming reminder that nature still exists. Right. In so many ways, again, we feel so disconnected to it. And it was a reminder that nature still exists and she will have her way. (laughs) And I really do, in my belief system, I feel that I was literally seeing the energy of the goddess of the universe in those fires, A, a, a terrifying and destructive aspect of her. But I believe that my body recognized that. And that's, I think that's where this place of longing was coming from. We so often as human beings battle and struggle with that uncertainty of our humanness. Yet I feel at our core, we innately know and understand what those meanings are. You know, we so often equate that to our very beginnings. We come from ashes, we return to ashes. So often becomes a mantra throughout various texts, throughout our existence. Right. And I really believe that we have to do work in reconnecting with the reality of death and destruction and grief. It's going to happen to all of us and it's happening to much of our planet. And what has been so, I mean, unfortunate, but also powerful for me is tracing alongside this journey I've been on since that recognition in 2018 that like, oh, wow, this is really happening. <laughs> we're, kind, we're, we're likely, you know, one of the last generations, at least living the way we're used to living. Tracing that same timeline since 2018, I experienced a number of personal losses. And so it, it, it's, it's been a journey of dealing with my sense of like a macro grieving for the earth and a micro grieving for my own personal losses. And I've seen so many parallels between the two. And right, and, and we haven't even mentioned the pandemic and how many extra people have died in the last few years because of the pandemic. So right, this, this notion of death and dying and things coming to the end and grieving that is beyond relevant at this point. I think we need to come up with a new language, a new culture around grieving because we're only going to continue to face this more and more. But I thank 
thank God, thank God, thank the goddess, whoever you want to thank that I have my spiritual belief system because it allows me to navigate it, allows me to make meaning and allows me to survive it with some sense of sanity intact. (laughs) That sense of sanity, you know, is that us struggling with our sense of loss of normalcy, you know, our program belief of what our reality can and should be. Absolutely. You know, a, a lot of people, well, I mean, I've read a lot about this notion of the end of the world, the apocalypse, as well as death and grieving. And, you know, some say, well, it's always been the end of, end of the world for someone, right? People in the Holocaust were facing the end of their world. Um, you know, people enslaved, you know, every little death is the end of the world for somebody. But humanity has never confronted the end of all of human civilization as we know it, um, at least not that I have any, any concept of, right? We can really imagine in the next few generations that life may, on earth may be unsustainable. And I think that's why it's taken us so long. I think there's my recognition of this I think has happened when so many people are finally right. We should have been dealing with this 20, 30, 40 years ago um, because we knew it was happening back then. But I think so many people are recognizing it now. Well, in part because it's just unavoidable, but I think that that that's part of why it's so hard because you can't wrap your mind around the end of human civilization. Like, you know, (laughs) I think our, our frail little minds can't face that, you know, or at least civilization as we've come to know it since the industrial revolution 200 years ago. And so I I think, I think it's just too much, but we have to start dealing with it so that we can adapt to it. Right. Most of us are going to live for a while longer and hopefully our children and our grandchildren will as well, but things are going to change and we have to figure out how to adapt to that both in a practical sense Like, how do we live? How do we get our energy, electricity, water, and all of that stuff, but also emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically? We have to consider as human beings, so often we're late to our own party. You know, so often that curve of growth and evolution is a catch-up game. Right. Where do you make up ground when that catch-up is potentially our end fate for this existence as we know it? Well, I don't know that you do. I don't know that you do make up ground. I think you just have to face it and survive again, even psychologically or emotionally as best you can. But I really also believe, I mean, I taught um, uh, at the university level for 17 years. Um, So from the early 2000s, I quit at the end of 2020. In that period of time, I saw a dramatic decline in my students' mental health. And it got worse and worse and worse, even over the last few years, semester by semester. And I think that that is just one example of the effect that this kind of stuff is having on us as a culture. But as you said, like, we're not catching up, right? Our, our, our culture of mental health and support and care is not catching up. Our societies, our sense of community and connection with one another, right? It's, it's, it's all kind of an unknown game. And so I think most people are doing the best that they can, but it's, it's very challenging. We look at that idea that as human beings, we so frequently look at this idea of 
being infinitely deserving of the fates we're dealt, of the things that happen to us, does that sometimes become somewhat of a facade based around that idea that we're inevitably traveling that predestined arc? Well, I think it definitely depends uh, particularly on your, your spiritual belief system. My belief system is that we all choose the time and manner of our lives, including our deaths. And that's part of how I came to some kind of acceptance and peace with what I think we're all facing, particularly what my daughter is facing and the terror I have for her future. I believe that we all chose to be here now. And, and, and again, that, that first year, 2018 to 2019, when I was like running from this grief and this reality, you know, I was hit with these ideas of how can I be one of the last people? What kind of luck is that? That I'm probably one of the last generations here on earth. And then I remembered my beliefs. Mm. No, I believe in reincarnation. So I'm not one of the last. I was one of the first. I was in a bunch of the middle periods. And yeah, now I'm at the end. And I also believe that we choose our lives. So my soul chose to be here now. My daughter chose to be here now for the growth of our souls um, through the challenges that we're facing now. So, you know, some might say that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of predestination um, that God is imposing this on us. Some might say this is completely random and that it is just bad luck that we happen to be living at this time. You know, again, for, for, for myself, I, I, I've got these spiritual beliefs to, to hang on to. And, it, and it's, it keeps me sane, much more sane than I was in 2018, first confronting this. You mentioned how this grief is often what you feel symbolic, both on a macro and micro level. You know, this impending sense of doom and sadness which looms over us, to me, surfaces in the form of anticipatory systems. You know, it's almost as if we're waiting around to attract that inevitable fate with our thoughts. You know, we start to create that reality in some regards. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, in my world, that would be called manifestation. Um, so we talk a lot about you know, let's face reality, right? We have to live here on earth and we need to be grounded, but also maintain some kind of hope for the future. And I, I think that that is true. I think that miracles are possible. I think that we don't really know what's going to happen or what timeline is going to play out. And so I try and avoid really sort of sinking down into that kind of... Um, well, we might say anticipatory grief even, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, by staying mindful and by staying present. As one can easily see, grief can come in many forms and present several challenging obstacles as we navigate it. Several of the more unusual things we do when grieving are simply okay. As we mentioned, Grief is a very individualized and unique process for each of us. No two ways about it. Defining a way that works for you, essential. In your times of grief, when that harbinger calls and your heart grows heavy, we hope you keep this in mind. If you know of a friend or loved one who struggles with grief or might benefit from sharing this episode, please do. We are grateful for you, our valued listening community. This has been The Light Inside. 
I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. We'll see you next time.